What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Club Metaverse podcast. I am Mark Fernandez, and I am joined today by cosmologist, theoretical physicist, and one of my personal kind of intellectual heroes, Dr. Lawrence Krauss. How are you, Mr. Krauss? I'm fine. It's a beautiful day where I am. <laughs> yeah, it does I look know what it's like where you are, but anyway. <laughs> it's hot, muggy, but beautiful as well. You know, we live in a beautiful planet. You know, yeah. that's the good news. Um, so, so just look, just to jump right into it, um, I, I unfortunately I haven't read your latest book, but I have seen it. I, I did already get the Amazon, and I'm very intrigued by it because it's a topic that I wouldn't expect you to tackle necessarily, given that I know your historical kind of intellectual pursuits. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's a book that completely goes around the concept of explaining what climate change actually is how to be more educated about it, how to be able to have better conversations with people about it. And, yeah. and, th and that's a very interesting topic, given that it is such a kind of hot button issue. And I think people kind of over politicize it to kind of figure out where you stand on which side of the line. Are you a, you know, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Tell me your take on climate change. This is actually a very fascinating topic. And I kind of skipped all your wonderful work, but I want to chat about this for a little bit. Oh, okay, sure. Well, it's you know, look, it's not not a book I expected to write. I wrote it during the when the pandemic first began, and everything I was doing was canceled. All my travel was canceled, and I was trying to think how I could do something useful. And I'd just been in Vietnam and Cambodia, leading a trip there, and which is, as I say in the book, the perfect storm when it comes to climate change. Mm. But what what I what I realized was missing. It was fun for me to do. I mean, it was an amazingly different book than anything I've done, and. And working 18 to 20 hours a day on it, I was able to finish it in 12 weeks instead of 12 months or two years, which is what my normal rate is. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea was, as you said, it's politi politicized and it shouldn't be. And the point was, I have a lot of friends and on, on different sides of the aisle. And, and what happens is that um, people get people immediately close their mind off when they think it's, it's, you're presenting a, a, this is what you need to do. You need mm -hmm. to do this. You need to do that. And a lot of people say, well, you know, that's a, you have an agenda. And so the idea was just to write a book about the science of climate change so mm -hmm. that, so that any of our discussions, if they're going to be rational, should start from there, should accept the facts and, and understand them. And it's not just listing facts, but have a basic understanding because as I point out, it's not rocket science. I've written books about rocket science, <laughs> not rocket science. And, and so the idea was to write something where, since I believe that the fundamental physics is understandable and comprehensible, and actually turns out to be kind of quite fascinating historically, mm. write a book which would just say, here, you can understand what the issues are, what the underlying science is, and you can see why it isn't speculative science about the future. It's 200-year-old science. And, and then from there, you can talk about policy. So there's no policy discussion in the book. It's really a discussion of trying to understand the, the science and pointing out the the challenges and and in some cases the the the, the warnings about what needs to be done. But but uh, I wanted it to be something so that people, would in principle, open their minds. They wouldn't feel they were being told what to do. I one of the people I had in my mind actually when I was writing it was a friend of mine, Penn Gillette, mm. uh, from Penn and Teller, magician. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's, I'm a big he's, fan. He's a libertarian. And I know he doesn't like to be told what to do. And and if I was, you know, talking about it. And actually, I was very happy, basically, when I wrote the book. He said, this is the book I've been waiting for. So, you know. so in your findings, in your kind of research doing the book, um, did you kind of land at a at a 
place where there has been sort of irreversible damage done by humans that we've kind of crossed past the line? Or, or is this something that's kind of more of a warning that if we continue on this path, we're going to cross that line? Well, we've already crossed a bunch of lines. Nothing's, uh, in a sense, nothing's irreversible. It just may take a long time. As I, ha as I point out in the book, I, it's, 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 I think I call it the Las Vegas effect or something. But, you know, as far as car carbon dioxide going in the atmosphere, what happens in the atmosphere stays in the atmosphere. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it takes about a thousand years for that to change. So we've already and, and that's the other thing that I point out is that climate change has already been happening. It's not something in the future. It's already happened at some level. And the part and, and the real part is trying to understand what's happening and realizing. Realizing what we need to do to at least accommodate and deal with what's been happening. In particular, recognize that, as I say at the end of the book, fortune favors the prepared mind, that hmm. knowing what's going, what, what, for example, what's happened already is there's going to be a half a meter sea level rise this century pretty well. And I think you said you down in the Florida Keys and you better, yeah. you should think of selling it soon. <laughs> <laughs> Never. They're going to have to bury me there, but yeah. yeah no. <laughs> but, uh, but, and so that's pretty well written in stone and there's not hmm. much you can do about that. And recognizing that simple fact means we got to realize, well, maybe there's six to 800 million people around the world who are going to be affected by that. And we should, we should start thinking about that. Not because it may affect us wherever we live it directly, but the socio-political ramifications of that many people say losing, losing their livelihood and, 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 or their, their, their homeland is, is going to be dramatic. And so we've got to think about those things. And this this rise in sea level, and pardon me for not knowing the details on this, but is this a cause of the like polar ice caps melting? No, well, actually, what's melting? really amazing, and one of the things I, I learned about when I was working on the book, although I kind of knew some of it at the beginning, but I wasn't, I was really surprised. One of the reasons it writ is written in stone. Yeah, there's a lot of there's some uncertainty in terms of Greenland melting and Antarctica melting, although there's a lot of data, and I I go over it in the book, but uh, but half of that. Fully half of that is just the simple fact, which is irrefutable. You could do it mm. in a high school physics class, that when you heat up water, it expands. Mm, and if you think the amount of heat that's been dumped into the oceans over the last 50 years, that still hasn't been equilibrated. And just that, that net average temperature rise will raise sea levels by about a quarter of a meter. Oh, just wow. that. And it's already in there. As I talk about in the book, uh, the amount of heat we've dumped in to the oceans from additional absorption of, 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 of uh, well, additional absorption of radiation from the sun that isn't re-emitted because of the trapping in the atmosphere. That's something like 3.5 billion Hiroshima-level bombs Jeez. exploding the water over the last, say, 30 to 40 years. That's five bombs every second, 24 hours a day, you know, every day, 365 days a year. That's a lot of energy. And do you think that the sort of cumulative cause for all of this, if you really had to sort of, you know, boil it down, is the burning of fossil fuels? Is that really what yeah. what essentially that's the large largest part of it is, is human generated uh, uh, carbon dioxide through the burning of fossil fuels and, and some other greenhouse gases. But, yeah, we've, you know, we've taken we've taken what took the planet hundreds of millions of years to, to generate in terms of sequestering that carbon dioxide in, into organic materials. And, and we're, we're, we've exploited it in about 100 years. Yeah, it's 
I know that you love kind of the, you know, the idea of using pop culture as a vessel to kind of talk about science. And last night I was lucky enough to see the kind of Miami premiere screening of Top Gun uh, Maverick. Oh, and, I was going to see that. It hasn't screened here yet. Anyway. Uh, it, it, it's First of all, the movie is absolutely amazing. But when I left the movie, obviously I was very tickled by the movie. I thought it was great. But in my brain, I'm thinking how many dinosaurs were combusted in the creation of this movie you know because yeah. like you can probably do the math exact and i'm sure it would be a ton be a lot. yeah it'd be a lot it'd be a lot um so do do you think if you could snap your fingers a la q to kind of bring in a little bit of a star trek reference if you can snap your fingers and change one thing about what humans need to do to kind of you know uh temper this climate change crisis what what would that be well, I wish there was. That's the point. It's it's. There's no silver bullet. Mm. I mean, there's there's lots of little things. There's lots of things that need to be done. Obviously, you know, looking at at, at fuels, including nuclear power, that don't that don't generate carbon dioxide is one. But I, I think mo I think in the near term, recognizing that it's that 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 it's an inevitable problem, especially for the third world, mm. and realizing what has to be done in preparing that infrastructure in Africa, but also in more important, equally importantly, in in um, in, in low lying lands like Cambodia and Vietnam, I mean, where the the Mekong River feeds sixty million people with rice, but sure. but if when it becomes brackish, like the water right outside my house right now, mm -hmm. um, it's not. It's going to be mangroves, <laughs> and right, uh, right, and um, but just thinking about what we can do to moderate that and and recognize the existing problem. I think is probably the most important thing. And then there's lots of little incremental things we can do in terms of conservation, in terms of effect, looking for sustainable uh, energy sources. But we have to, first of all, make sure everyone has the right infrastructure to, 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 to move on. But, and, and you know, anyway, there's a lot. So I think like many things, recognizing the problem is the hardest part. As I say in the book, the problem isn't technological. Mm. It's political. Right. Right, because it's somehow become this thing about, yeah, which is not, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me how it became such a political kind of, you know, one side, other side. You yeah, know, well, kind you of know, I think there's a lot of money involved, and that causes people to generate arguments that make that make you know that that benefit them. But I also think it's something like what we what's often called the tragedy of the commons, in the sense that mm. it's the kind of thing where, well. If I do something, but they don't do something, then there's no point in my doing it, right? And so, right, it, it, it's the first. It's essentially the first time that humanity's really had to deal with a truly global problem that can't be solved by one country or one group. It, it, ha it has. It, it's going to require a, a, a cooperation globally at some level, and that we just haven't, not as a species, ever done that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, kind of to jump, um, because I know, you know, I want to be very respectful of your time, but, um, and I have a couple of questions here I want to ask. Um, sure. One one thing that, you know, just to take it back into the, you know, Star Trek world, I know one of your, you know, famous books and, and people got to know you through the physics of Star Trek and mm -hmm. you did your show with William Shatner and how Shatner changed the world. And, you know, it, it's very well documented, you know, um, um, you know, the, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I'm, I'm brain farting on this one. Uh, 
um, the great physicist who wrote the foreword on your book, Stephen uh, Hawking. Stephen Hawking's, of course. You know, so so you know, you've been through all this gambit, and 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 you've said that your favorite episodes of Star Trek, the ones that that really got your mind going the most, were the time travel episodes. Yeah. And and then famously, you quote that Stephen Hawking's told you, well, you know, I can prove that that time travel is not real because if it were real, we'd have people visiting us all the time, and you. Very, you know, funny said that, you know, they all went to the 1960s, right? So and nobody noticed. Yeah. And right. Nobody noticed. So my question is, you know, there's been a lot of kind of during the pandemic, there was this kind of news cycle that was very subtle, but very interesting to me about these flying TikToks and these UFOs and all this kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. Right. And people, obviously, their first thought is that these are interstellar travelers. And to yeah. me, in the story that I know of, of of the universe and the physics and our place within it, it seems more probable to me that it would be easier for somebody to travel back in time and have a TikTok than it would be for somebody to travel across, you know, the stars and and get to us. What, yeah, well, you know, I don't know whether it's easier, but it, they're both they're both, <laughs> both highly unlikely. Let me put it that way. I mean, it is so. It amazes me, and it, you see it all the time. Whenever it's like, whenever there's something unexplained, oh, it's aliens. Right, um, you know, in, in other contexts, it's God, but it, but in the case of, of of seeing things in the sky, it's always got to be aliens, and well, we're primed for that with our TV and movies. But if you look at the science of it, and I talk about that in the physics of Star Trek, and then again in a in a book I wrote afterwards called Beyond Star Trek, um, the, the as as Richard Feynman said, I think uh, aliens, uh, you know, ob reported observations of aliens or whatever, it's much less likely due to the known rationality of other species and much like more likely due to the known irrationality of humans. Right. Uh, and right. because almost any explanation you can come up with as crazy as it might be makes more sense than, <laughs> because, you know, to, as I, as I talk about in the book to take a spacecraft and move it near the speed of light, a spacecraft big enough to contain people and, and equipment and everything else, or people like things that, you know, a massive spacecraft, uh, would require more energy than there is in the in the observable universe, basically. To, sure. To, and and even you know even if you could change things and use different kinds of tricks, it would still be equivalent to the power output of a star. And I, as I say, think I said in the book, maybe uh, I, I have a hard time imagining that some advanced civilization would harness what is equivalent to the power output of a star to come all the way here and and kidnap and do weird kinky experiments on a few humans. I mean, <laughs> so so given that you're an insider, one of the you know brightest minds of our generation and of multiple generations at this point, with all due respect, um, what what's your kind of take on this whole TikTok phenomenon? Have you had any inside conversations I mean, about it? Or well, look, look, I mean, I think, first of all, when you have a lot of people shoot, <laughs> putting cameras and other things up in the sky, you're going to get strange things i mean it's just it's always it's you know it's something we physicists learn actually if you do a fit particle experiment and you take enough data you're going to find some really strange stuff and the thing we teach ourselves is to not make assume that weird stuff is significant mm. because you'll always statistically get strange events that seem like something is happening and we have to say well okay but if you've looked at enough of them what's the likelihood of getting something strange and then you say well it's not so not so strange. I, I think the example I often use is, uh, which I may have gotten from Richard Feynman, was, um, you know, you have dreams every 
every night and and you know they're crazy most of the time but one night you dream that your friend breaks their leg and then next day you know you call them and they and they were in a car accident and they broke their arm or something like that and say right oh, goodness i dreamed about it and you say yeah but how about all of the thousands and thousands of dreams you've had that were nonsense that didn't do anything but you always we always ascribe significance to things we see and it's like fox Muldar says i want to believe we want to believe there's stuff out there it's nice to think we're not alone but but if if you're looking at a lot of stuff you're going to see some strange stuff and 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 the other thing people don't realize is a lot of what they used to call ufos and now i think they have a different name for is all that meant is that they were identified it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that they're aliens it means that we couldn't didn't have a clear explanation of what they were but but there's a lot of stuff i see that i can't identify and myself and i don't ascribe that to be aliens it's the 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 physics is so is such that it's so hard to it's so implausible for so right. many reasons that that we would be being visited. Not that aliens don't exist on other around other stars. That's I think highly likely at some level in our galaxy. Although sure. I think it's also highly unlikely we'll ever know about it. Right, it's a big, it's a big place. But uh, but you know I think lately it's that and the idea that you know when you have it's not just more observations. You got a lot more people now. In the old days, to get a report out, you had to go to your paper or do something. And now you just have TikTok. You have it's the same problem. <laughs> Everyone becomes a no blogger. pun intended. Yeah. You got seven billion or five billion people, or how many? What a fraction of the eight billion people on the planet are? You know, two billion people using the internet. You're going to get a lot of people reporting strange things. Yeah, it's amazing because in uh, in Star Trek: First Contact, it was one of my favorite Star Trek movies. Yeah. When they get to to Earth and the Borg had taken over, they say, "Oh, the planet Earth has nine billion people." Like this was some number that would never happen. Yeah, you know, it, like 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 in nobody's lifetime, only some crazy space age thing. And look, we're almost we're starting to push that reality. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get we'll get to, we'll get up to ten billion people, I suspect, and 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 or close to it. And you know, we're well on track. It's hard to imagine not being there. You know, I was going, it dates me, but I remember there were two and a half billion people when I was young. So, and I believe in 1940 was when we flipped over to one billion, right? It's, it's a it bigger spike. Been, than I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly like, like many things, a kind of polynomial, if not exponential growth. I mean, and, um, and of course it's turning over in certain places and I think it's going to turn over naturally. Um, but it's, but it's still an issue. And I, and there's certainly, if you ask what's the biggest problem about climate change, it's probably the number of people on the planet. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, like I used to be really big into fish tanks. And, you know, the one thing that always gets me out of the hobby is this concept of bio load, right? You get too excited about putting more bio load in the biosphere. Yeah. And you end up destroying it, right? Because they just can't sustain that level of, yeah. of yeah. And biology. I mean, and, you know, the planet can sustain... Well, maybe the planet can sustain as many people we have now. I mean, food-wise, it can, but there are lots of other issues, and um, and uh, uh, that's an issue that people have to face. But these things are not politically correct to talk about limiting the number of children. We encourage people to have more and more children, as if it's a great gift to the world. Sure. And and you know, it may be a personal gift uh, for some people, for others not. Uh, but it's it's something we have to think about ourselves as global citizens it's like um it's like rousseau once said which is you know everyone's man was born free but forever is in chains we have a social contract and at some point at some point we have to think about the fingerprint we create and we didn't have to for a long time 
for humanity. And now we do. And, and you know, you, you've mentioned Richard Feynman a few times, and I look at Richard Feynman as kind of like the godfather of, of scientific evangelists and <laughs> one of the first ones to start bringing this information to the people. And then Carl Sagan, of course, like yeah. that's sort of early. And I would consider you obviously the next generation that came after them. Did you know Richard Feynman? And maybe that skipped my little historical knowledge of you. Yes, I did. Yeah, I did know Richard Feynman and he had a huge influence on me. In fact, a huge influence in the way I just, I not only do physics, but the way I, uh, I, I describe the world and the way I, uh, um, yeah. So I think he had a big influence. I knew him when I was a young person. I, I wrote about it. Actually, I wrote a scientific biography of Richard Feynman. Oh wow! I, to okay, I gotta check that the out. One that's there. It's one. Of my, it's a. It's called um, Quantum Man, and um, and it, there are many things I like about that book. Uh, it was a, it was a labor of love uh, because it, I, I agreed to do it when I was asked to do it because I would knew it would force me to read all his papers, which I probably wouldn't otherwise. But it, it, it's also one of the only books that I don't think has ever gotten any bad reviews. But, um, <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's got a, one of the fun things about it, which may or may not be relevant. It's not really relevant to science, but I, I can't resist. Is that sure. a, a, a friend of mine who's a writer named Cormac McCarthy, um, who you may or may not know, but his books are very famous. He's won only won the Pulitzer Prize, but his books like No Country for Old Men. And, oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Of course, um, of course. Uh, be, uh, and so, um, Anyway, he 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 read the hardcover and said, I, "I love this book. It's perfect, but it's not perfect. It's almost perfect. I can make it perfect. Let me copy edit the paperback." And so I said, "Sure, of course." And so he copy edited the paperback. And if you get the paperback, it says with edits by Cormac McCarthy. And I think the New York Times picked it up because they were kind of amazed that he edited a book on a quantum scientist. But it, but but I'm very happy to have his name in one of my books. Well, man, now 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 I want to check out the paperback version. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did did were you one of his students? Was he? Uh, no, no, I no, I I wasn't a student of uh, Feynman's, but I well, I, I mean, I knew met him a few times. I I give the story of it in that book because uh, uh, it's to some extent poignant. But I was a student at a, and um, when I grew up, this this organization that I was an official of, uh, actually, I grew up in Canada. It was the Canadian Undergraduate Physics Association. We managed to have him come up and 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 be a speaker and and. Um, and that was the first time I met him. And, and I, I had one, my girlfriend came with me at the time and she was one of the few women around. And so he spent most of his time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we spent the weekend together. Yeah. And then later on when I was at Harvard, of course, I, I lectured at Caltech a few times and, and I tell a story in the book, which I won't go into, but it's, it's sort of sad for me because uh, I lectured and he, he, he came up and, and a a afterwards and, and, and one last question, there was a very annoying assistant professor kept, wouldn't go away and eventually Feynman walked away and I said well I'll catch him later but they died shortly afterwards so oh, I want sorry, to let yeah. you know to remind him that I was the young guy from before but he yeah I mean there's there's still some gold for people that are listening there's some gold if you just you know YouTube Richard Feynman some of his explanations of, of, of things are, is just great, you know, you know, and as I say I certainly think of him as a, well I mean I don't put myself on that scale but he certainly was a strong influence in the way I both think about physics and the way I present it. Yeah. So one one last thing about the aliens, and I'm I'm trying to sort of condense here, you know, keeping my eye on the clock. Okay. Um, there was a gentleman that I interviewed on the show maybe a few months ago. His name was Dr. Avi Loeb, also from Harvard. Oh yeah, I know uh, Avi. Yeah. 
And um, and Avi, you know, obviously uh, kind of became sort of mainstream famous after this discovery of this interstellar space that's object. No, no, claimed was an alien spacecraft. Yeah, that was his claim. That's yeah, his, that's well, he, he itched a ride on that alien spacecraft <laughs> into the public sphere. Yeah. What What was your take on that? Nonsense. 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 Mm -hmm. Was it based on the data that 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 no, you I mean, saw look, or? Uh, I don't want to talk. I mean, no, 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 no. It, it's I mean, just... Look, I mean, it just it's one of those things that you know. There's, it's a very unusual object, but to jump into the assumption that it's aliens is a huge leap without any evidence. Sure. And um, and and you know, you can make some interesting calculations, and Avi does that a lot. He just sort of calculates things, and hey, this is amusing, and and but <laughs> but I think you push it. I I don't think generally the problem I have with people who write popular books on their own little ideas. Mm -hmm is if they haven't, you do a disservice to the public. If you, And I know a lot, I have a lot of colleagues who do this. You know, they write a paper that no one, none of their colleagues buys and has no impacts on the field whatsoever. But they mm -hmm. like it, and they write a whole book about it. And the public gets the notion that somehow this is some big issue. And it's really distorting, because I can, you know, the public it relies on people like me or Avi or other people, scientists. And so I can say anything I want, and people will, in some sense, say, ooh, neat, you know. But so I have an obligation as a scientist and as a popularizer to not m knowingly misrepresent the status of the field or what we know. Mm. Now, of course, I unknowingly probably do it. And, and people may take away from what I say things that are different than I intend. And that certainly happens. I know for having written books for 30 or 40 years. But, but you know, Avi wrote a paper to this effect about, about this possibility and it had no impact on the field. Sure. And people just thought, okay, yeah, that's amusing, but it's no, and, and, and um, so I think, I think my problem is, it's not that, you know, the science isn't amusing to think about, but it gives the wrong impression to people. Yeah, because, you know, the, the whole premise was based on the fact that when Oumuamua went around the sun, it picked up speed and this yeah. was able to be calculated and it was antithetical to what the prediction was. Yeah, but you can imagine happen. lots of, I mean, you can imagine ways, and obvious tried to say those ways are not likely, but I know colleagues who said, no, there's, you know, uh, uh, there's uh, um, uh, not evaporation, but, but um, um, yeah, I forget the word now, but where materials are, are uh, uh, not ablated either, but, yeah, yeah, it's a cosmic, cosmic uh, jetting of some kind. Yeah, I know exactly yeah. you what can imagine uh, sublimation. That's the word I'm looking at. Mm. And um, and so there, there are different ways to imagine this is happening. And and a single, I mean, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Sure. Well, I don't think there's any extraordinary evidence there. Now, Avi might, well, he would undoubtedly disagree. But he's he's a he's a he's a group of one. <laughs> and sure. I, I think I I'd la I would dare say. That the that on the whole he hasn't convinced anyone else that that, that that that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, that that seems to be the case, and I think he understands that, internalizes that pretty well. Yeah, he does. He, but, but you know, but it was you know, it's very. I I don't want to go in for look. I know Avi, and and he and he's you know he's a very prolific scientist, and uh, and I've worked. We were on a team together trying to develop a spacecraft to go to the nearest star. For a Russian billionaire was funding yeah. it. This is uh, the Galileo project, or no? It's called Breakthrough Starshot. Oh, okay, but, yeah, um, yes. So we, I've worked with him a lot, but I think it's very tempting, as a scientist who's been in the public sphere a lot, mm. it's really tempting when there's interest. And if you mention aliens, 
you can get interest and it's really tempting to play into that interest uh, when you're when you're writing a book or when you're talking to journalists and so it's really tempting to try and please people to go where they want to go and it's really hard it's not so exciting you wouldn't see an MSNBC report saying guess what scientists have just decided this 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 uh, meteorite or or asteroid is not a, a UFO. There's not going right. to be a nightly news report on that. <laughs> right, right, right. That's a fair point. Um, what one one thing um, you know um, that I kind of want to jump to here, or one one thought that I was having as you were speaking, and something I've heard you say in the past that's always kind of stuck with me is that most uh, theories in physics are incorrect. You know. Yeah. A, 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 and that that's part of the game, right? It's about eliminating the possibilities. Well, yeah, and by incorrect, I mean not that they've made a mathematical error. It's just that they don't correspond to nature. Right, right. And There's if, no... they weren't, if it weren't that way, then anyone could do physics, right? I mean, yeah. it just so happens you come up. I've written a lot of papers which I thought, well, nature is just really a shame that nature isn't smart enough to adopt what I've argued it should be doing. Yeah. But the, but the, but unfortunately, nature is the arbiter of, of, what, of what works. And, and so... Most scientific theories, especially forefront scientific theories, are wrong because we're 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 sort of grasping at straws, and we're we're at the edge of knowledge. My new book, by the way, which I just finished four days ago. Well, congratulations! Um, it's called the the known unknowns, and it's about what we know we don't know about the universe. And and when you get to the edge of knowledge, it's really kind of that's where that's where you have to recognize that people are. That lots of possibilities exist. They only those possibilities only exist at the edge of knowledge. It's not as if anything we're going to discover now is going to change the fact that if I take a ball and let it go, it's going to fall. Mm. So people have the wrong idea about scientific revolutions that somehow we'll discover something and everything we now know to be true will be false, and that's just never going to be the case. But at the edge of knowledge, there's a lot. Almost anything goes, and and physicists are are creative enough and driven enough by by the desire to get funds and continue their jobs to come up with almost any explanation and maybe one of them's right but most of them are almost always wrong yeah the um one one of the things that uh, I've I've always kind of you know held on to is and I remember seeing you at the World Science Festival like 7 8 years ago already in New York City and buying my ticket and seeing you on stage and loving every moment of it and, and thinking of something that Brian Green said in an interview that I did with him that science is really about the ability to have accurate predictions, you know, and that something, if you discover some kind of data set that is pretty good at predicting things, then it has some scientific, uh, you know, strength. Well, predictions, I mean, science, yeah, because it's what makes science different than storytelling. Mm. Uh, science has stories to tell, but it adds predictions. And that's everything, because then you can test them. And if the predictions are are wrong, then you throw it out like yesterday's newspaper, regardless of how elegant the theory is. And Brian, of course, and I have had some disagreements about the likelihood the string theory is, say, going to be correct for that reason. But sure. But um, but you know, but the point is, those people are honestly trying to come up with something where they can make prediction that this test is it's not as if they're trying to avoid that. Um, they're they're good scientists working hard. Um, and. and, and Mm-hmm. And to focus in on the string theory thing a little bit, do you think that string theory um, has done a decent job? Because I know it's impossible to sort of test its metal, so to speak. But do you think that string theory has done a decent job at being able to predict 
things? No, it hasn't predicted anything yet. Right. <laughs> um, but 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 that's not to say it's not been useful. The ideas from string theory have been very useful in other areas of physics. And they, they provided new ways to calculate things that we couldn't have calculated otherwise. Mm. So all of that work, all that mathematical work hasn't gone to waste. But, um, but in terms of making a prediction about the universe or explaining any observable that we've seen, string theory has yet to, to do any of that. You know, you, you've, um, in one interview, I know that you mentioned that, that you were pretty close with another physicist um, who recently was uh, responsible for the discovery of gravitational waves and that amazing experiment with those two out, outposts, one in Texas, the other one in Seattle or something incredible like that. The ones in Louisiana, but you're not far. <laughs> yeah. But the point is they're far away from each other and they were calibrated to this exact moment and they were able to detect these gravitational waves. And when I look back at the history of physics, um, gravity has always been at the sort of center of man's greatest sort of like pivots, you know, from Newton to Einstein. And then, you know, that's why, you know, like I had that sci-fi story that I was working on about mm. the discovery of the graviton. Mm. Do you think that that is the next thing that's going to happen is some deeper understanding of gravity or, or have we kind of reached the sort of glass ceiling for the understanding of gravity. People always ask me what the next big thing is. And I always say, if I knew I'd be doing it. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but, but the point is that we've known for some time that gravity and quantum mechanics appear ir irreconcilable. And people have spent a lot of time trying to make them reconcilable. And string theory is one attempt to do that. Hmm. Um, and, and it's a very exciting area of thought, and it'll be necessary to have such an, a theory, or at least an understanding, if we want to understand the beginning of the universe, for example, or what happens inside deep inside black holes, both of which I again talk about in the new book. But, hmm. but, but, it's not it's interesting because it's not it's been touted as a theory of everything but it's really a theory of very little because mm -hmm. while it's essential to understand the beginning of the universe in the center of black holes almost all of what we understand about the universe we don't need a theory of quantum gravity for and there's lots of other things to be discovered so it's in terms of fundamental physics it's one of the it's one of the biggest uh, mysteries and biggest um, challenges and 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 uh and therefore, people have a lot of people have been putting their energy into it. But there's still lots of even at fundamental scales of the, about what, the nature of elementary particles and the forces we can measure that we we don't understand. And so there's a lot of things uh, out there to think about. It's very sexy to think about a, th a theory of quantum gravity. And I am sure, like any other th young theorist, I was seduced by thinking about such things when I was when I was a graduate student because it's such mm -hmm. a clear and obvious goal sure a recognition that until you have a theory of quantum gravity you can never really understand the universe at all scales so as a long-term goal it's fascinating but in terms of understanding the universe it's really you understand very you know localized parts of it and albeit the beginning of the universe is a very important part of the universe sure but, and 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 did did the did this kind of conf the confirmation of gravitational waves get us a little bit closer to understanding this potential not directly no not the uh, gravitational waves are classically are, are a phenomenon of classical general relativity it's a sure. beautiful prediction of classical general relativity which i thought would never be testable and it is and it's one it's a it's a testament to the ingenuity of of, of experimentalists and their and their their patience and and perseverance that that we've been able to 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 see them 
but more generally, if you, it's the beginning of a new field, and it's possible. And as we look at new types of gravitational wave detectors, including using the universe as a gravitational wave detector, um, it, then it's possible we might be able to probe regimes where, where quantum mechanics and gravity are, are relevant together. But the, but the observation of gravitational waves from colliding black holes, as it's been seen, are really confirmations of, of classical general relativity. And, you know, maybe I think eventually, every time you open a new window on a, a new window on the universe, you're surprised. And mm. this is certainly a new window on the universe. So it will come up with lots of surprises. What one interesting thing. Um, why is it you think as an American scientist, somebody that represents your community, you're involved at all levels of this stuff. Why is it that America has kind of, quote unquote, fallen behind in the world of particle physics? We're not really conducting a lot of experiments here in the mainland anymore. It's not, it doesn't seem to be as big a deal as it was back in the day with the Manhattan Project, et cetera. Yeah, no, no, it's certainly true. Uh, I mean, I, that concerned me for a long time. I should say I've left America, so it doesn't bother me so much. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but the problem is one of, um, of explaining to the public the need to, to fund science appropriately and and the United States was in the position of having of building the biggest particle accelerator in the world that would have dwarfed the one at the, in 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 Geneva mm. and have built it 20 years earlier. Um, and but but we decided that spending 10 billion dollars was something we couldn't afford to do in 1992. At 10 billion dollars total, not 10 billion dollars a year. Sure. But that was that was in a day when 10 billion dollars seemed like a lot of money. Right. And and and. and uh, and for reasons that really didn't have to do with the science, the United States uh, Congress decided to stop funding for it. And the real problem is the fact that the United States is one of the few countries, Western countries, and maybe one of the few countries where large-scale um, uh, government appropriations for funding science can be undone the next year by the next administration. So, so that the, the superconducting super collider had been proved, by, I think, by three American presidents. It was killed by the fourth, okay, and 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 that's just the way it is. Every year you have to go through the same hassle, and so instead of saying we are committed to this, to building this, and we're going to do it, it's we're committed now, but tomorrow we may change our minds, and you've seen that in some sense in the in the in the in the Apollo space program, okay, where where mm -hmm. you know we sent six missions or seven or something to the um, six missions, I think maybe seven to the moon, and they just said, okay, done it, been there and done that, let's. Not like, and I'm, I must say, I'm not a big fan of human space exploration, but, but you know, it's just. Uh, but uh, this, but it's a fascinating point because the privatization of space exploration is happening, right, with Elon Musk and SpaceX yes. and and all of the stuff that he's doing. It just, and I can't believe I never thought about this before. Do you think it's possible to privatize the study of particle physics? And is that no? And I don't think it's possible to privatize ultimately the study of space either. I, Elon, no, I mean there's. Private industry can do certain things very well, and the United States and the government, by the way, sort of created the, the whole paradigm of orbital of 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 orbital space exploration around the Earth, and now it's appropriate having that we know how to do it that 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 private industry follows up and tries to commercialize that. But private industry is not going to explore the universe, and it's not even going to explore Mars. It's not. It's just too expensive. I, I you know, it's just not going to happen. The only right. way it's going to happen is if we, if the government, we're talking about hundred or hundreds of billions of dollars to, mm. to 
send humans at least uh, to Mars and and back appropriately. And and um, uh, you know that's the only kind of thing that industry isn't going to do because there's no, as far as I can see, there's no build business plan. Now physicists are there are enough billionaires and soon trillionaires in the world that that it's sort of becoming like like the medieval times or the renaissance times <laughs> where there are patrons sure so you can have a, a, a someone who has a few hundred billion dollars saying remember the whole budget of the national science foundation is something like 10 billion dollars right all of science all, now and the department of energy funds particle physics and and other areas so maybe another five to ten billion dollars but but there are individuals nowadays who can devote that kind of wealth to these things and so so there are areas of science where people are choosing patrons to try to help it. I don't think it's going to happen in particle physics, but it already happens in astronomy and other areas. Yeah, the 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 barrier to enter in particle physics seems so high because it's all about making more energy, right? Like, well, you... it's not just it's not just the difference is it's not just the money involved and the required to. It's it's you have in a particle physics experiment now you have ten thousand PhD scientists who are right. working to build that. That's not the kind of thing that private money does. I mean, sure. and, and so uh, uh, it's just a whole different scale of activity. Uh, and so it's, it, you know, there'll be, there'll be donors who will help, help in individual universities or institutions build devices that might be used in particle accelerators. And that's, I'm sure happened and is happening. Um, and, and just like there are, well, in, in astronomy, the big telescopes are essentially built by private, private, foundations the keck mm -hmm. foundation things like that where, where they're funding the big telescopes but the, but the the scale of what's required to really probe the ultimate energy frontier is just a different thing altogether and 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 uh while it, it would be nice for private individuals to, to help out it's not going to happen and it's not and the thing is it's so large that nowadays i think we realize that one country isn't going to do it that's why cern which is uh, uh, an amalgam of many different countries is sure. probably the leading place in the world because because uh, many different countries contribute to the to the global project. And as I understand it, CERN is actually looking to expand its outer ring to create higher. Yes, well, CERN is certainly expanding. Look, we're looking at the next accelerator, and CERN is considering. You know, it's certainly one of the places. There's other. There's places in China. What about Antarctica? Is my is my prediction going to come true? You think? No, no chance in hell. No, right? I don't think so. <laughs> right. But I think it's equally. I think it's. I think China maybe. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, look, we've we've gone on for about forty five minutes here. You've been so generous with your time, Dr. Krauss. I'm so honored to to get a chance to chat with you. The Origins Podcast. You can check it out on everywhere you get your podcast. You can check it out on YouTube. Um, and, you know, Lawrence Krauss is like an endless, you know, wealth of interesting tidbits and facts and info. So please check out his work. And it spans for over a decade now because I've been listening to you, for, you know, for years. I knew oh, you oh, before oh, I knew Bitcoin. Try, try three decades. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you know, you've been influencing my mind before I even knew what Bitcoin was back in, you know, the, you know, the early uh you know, teams or whatever. Well, there we go. I mean, and that makes me feel old, but that's good. Yeah. All right, Dr. Krause, thank you so much for your time. And um, thank you all for listening. And we will see you on the next one. You take care. It's a pleasure. I'll come back sometime. Thanks. Cool. Bye-bye.